To begin, I just want to back up and review a bit. Past few weeks, we've been focusing on discipleship, and especially in regards to instruction and admonition, the main text we've looked at many times, Romans 15, 14. Hopefully it's kind of drilled in your head at this point. You can kind of generally say what it is. Um, I myself am satisfied about you, Paul says, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Here, Paul assumes that God's people, not just the elders, are able to instruct and admonish others of God's people. And we've been talking about this for weeks, but you might have come through all this and with a sense of personal inadequacy, you might say, how? How do I do this? How can I do this effectively? And we want to, what we're getting to is looking through Proverbs specifically and seeing how Proverbs can fill in some of the how of discipleship. But of course, again, before we dive real deep into that, the first how of discipleship is what's the content of our discipleship. And we've talked about this frequently. We've talked about 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so we have supplied for us everything we need for life and godliness. And just to walk through this a little bit, um, these things are granted in verse 3 through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So you're seeing we're granted everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through Christ. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of Christ. We're looking where precious and very great promises are found. We're looking where we find faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love as we see in verses 5-7. through And we find it's in the prophetic word more fully confirmed than the experience of Peter later in the chapter. And we find explicitly it's Spirit-given Scripture. So, to outline what we're talking about a little bit, we can talk about the who of discipleship, the what of discipleship, the why of discipleship, the when and the how. So who, who is called to be a discipler or a disciple? And we've said from Romans 15, 14, it's everybody. Everybody that is born again is called to disciple and to be discipled. The what is what we were just reading about in 2 Peter 1, the content of our discipleship. It's the Word of God. The why just pause for a moment. Why do we disciple? Yeah. Yeah. We're, co- we're commanded to in Matthew 28. The Great Commission, we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have the who, it's everybody. The what, it's the Word of God. The why, we're commanded to. 
And coming more to what we're going to be looking at this week and next week, when do we disciple? And what I, the Proverbs have a lot to say that might guide the timing of our conversations. And how do we disciple? While the who, what, and why are very objective, the how and the when have more, more subjectivity to them. That requires wisdom, which is why we're going to Proverbs to get some wisdom. So, as far as today and next week, we're looking at wisdom for being a disciple today and wisdom for discipling others next week. And we're going to be searching Proverbs to help us in these things. Begin by looking at Proverbs 1. Sounds like a good place to start (laughs) at the beginning. And I think it's very instructive. Looking at these first few verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying. The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise instruction. And the first thing I want to point out is the order of operations in these verses. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction comes before to give prudence. And I don't think that's accidental. The order of operations here is I must receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. And then I give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. And that's going to be foundational to everything we're going to be talking about today. Is that we need to recognize a lack in ourselves, in and of ourselves. That needs to be filled by something else. Namely, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit. We are inadequate in and of ourselves to give counsel. Paul doesn't say that you are able to counsel one another because he's so confident in the, in the natural ability of the Romans. But he says that because of what we see in Second Peter 1. That God has given to us everything that we need. It's not because it's in me, but it's given to me. And it's available to me. And we are able to counsel one another because we all have access to what has been provided. So, we must receive instruction, then give prudence, knowledge, and discretion. And it's... To transition, 
the opening line of Calvin's Institutes is helpful here. Calvin talks about how, well, what I have is our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. So according to Calvin, if you're going to have any knowledge worth anything, it has to begin with knowing who God is, knowing who you and I are. And we see that in Proverbs 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we see the beginning of all this is knowing who God is. But if we're going to come to a greater knowledge of ourselves, what we're really asking for is self-awareness. Knowing who we are. And biblical self-awareness will necessarily lead to humility, which will necessarily lead to an openness to reason and willingness to be instructed and admonished by others. Which is necessary if you're going to be a disciple, which... I didn't make this connection, but it's necessary to be a disciple in order to disciple others. If you're going to expect to be able to disciple others and people to actually listen to you, it will do you no good if you're not willing to listen to others. And it's pretty apparent that you're not willing to listen to others. So, biblical self-awareness. What does this look like? Uh, one, I think, extremely helpful place we can look is the end of Job. Because you could argue that in the middle of Job, Job loses a sense of biblical self-awareness and has to be corrected when God Himself comes on the scene. You come to chapter 40, and the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And what the beautiful thing is here is that Job comes to recognize who he is. He comes to recognize who God is and who I am in relation to Him, and I have not been acting rightly. I've elevated my own importance and devalued God's importance. Thus the ranting and the accusations of God's character. The Lord goes on, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? And it's on the same theme. Do you know who you are, Job? Do you know who I am? Because the way you've been acting, you seem to have forgotten the order of things. You can see a, a different color on this with David when Nathan approaches him. And he's told a parable about a rich man who takes the one sheep that belongs to his poor neighbor when he has hundreds of sheep and wants to entertain his friends. And David is indignant, angry, but it's a lack of self-awareness because 
when he wants to lay down the hammer of justice, Nathan points at him and says, you are the man. So how do we grow in biblical self-awareness? We certainly believe in the doctrine of total depravity, the idea that all parts of our being are tainted with sin. We believe in what's called the noetic effects of sin, in that everything we do is tainted by sin. My thinking is tainted by sin. My emotions are tainted by sin. And what this means is I should have a fundamental distrust of myself. I should have a fundamental distrust of my assessment of my feelings, my assessment of my reason. Doesn't mean I'm wrong, but it means that I'm not right by default, as we are so often prone to go with. And I think the most powerful verse in Proverbs is found in chapter 30 in regards to this. So we were at the beginning, now we jump to the end. Proverbs 30. The words of Agur, son of Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now hopefully, especially verse 4, you're brought back to Job, right? Because these are almost the same questions that the Lord is asking of Job. But that phrase that It's hard to read and hard to say in verse 2. Surely I am too stupid to be a man, and I have not the understanding of a man. And the question is, can you say that of yourself? Can I say that of myself? We're finally getting our study room put together, and... My hope is at some point to have a sign somewhere in the room that says this on it. (laughs) And it's because everything in us bucks against that. I'm not stupid. I know what's going on. (laughs) Uh, I got it figured out. I can figure it out on my own if I don't know it. This verse should shatter any sense of that. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. It's harsh. It's hard. But it's true. Charles Bridges, a commentator on this passage, says, Whoever knows his own heart, self-awareness, knows that of himself, that he can hardly conceive of anyone else being so degraded as himself. That's where you get Paul saying, I'm the chief of all sinners. You mean Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament? Gives us some of the most high theology in all the Bible? Greatest of all sinners? He had self-awareness. He knew who he was. He did not flatter himself. He did not build himself up. He did not puff himself up. He had biblical self-awareness. 
And this is something we need help with because our flesh fights viscerally against this. We are cultivated, especially in our particular culture, to fight against this. We want to be independent. I can figure it out on my own. I don't need help from other people. The one who embraces that surely I am too stupid to be a man will be skeptical of such impulses. Let's walk through this chapter a little bit. Proverbs 5 through 6, or 30, 5 through 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So again, it, it's interesting. Here you have right together knowledge of God, knowledge of self, and how they both they both need to come together. So we've been smacked down with knowledge of self. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. You come to verse five, we gotta look to knowledge of God. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. But it's the man who does not embrace that he is too stupid to be a man that's going to twist God's words and say, maybe I can do better. Maybe God didn't mean that. Maybe maybe I see something no one else sees. And I can thread the needle and come up with something that's better. But that impulse is the impulse of a liar. Verses 8 through 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Same theme. Extreme riches and extreme poverty both cause us to forget who we are and who God is. There's so many pitfalls to thinking, well, especially in the case of the extreme poverty, that I'm the exception. I can steal because of my great need. It's interesting... this popped in my mind now. I'm listening to the memoirs of Clarence Thomas on Audible. It's really interesting. And one example he gives, like he's barely scraping to get by, barely has enough food. He has to borrow food, money from his coworkers to pay for food. And he finds a wallet on the street that has $600 in it. And he says, the first idea he gets is, this is a gift from God. <laughs> and I should keep it. But then... He realizes it's a foolish idea. He calls the number on the license. The guy comes, and he's rude to him. He assumes that he stole the money, and he says it's all there, and he begrudgingly hands him a $5 bill. And the lesson he said he took from that, one of them was doing the right thing, you do it when no one's watching. We've all heard that, but it's also not doing the right thing with any... Your need does not justify certain actions from you. That was the second point. It didn't matter that this man had so much money and he had so little. His need did not justify him taking what didn't belong to him. And we're seeing that here. The rich, they forget who they are because they have no need. And they can get by on their own. 
So again, we see the pitfalls that pull us away from biblical self-awareness and knowledge of who God is. 11-14, through 14, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. The, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. And the assumptions here, if you're cursing your father and you're cursing your mother, you don't know who you are. You don't recognize the order of things. Those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. All of this comes back down to embracing the Lord is God and I am not. And I have nothing in and of myself. Everything good I have is a gift from God. This is why we see in Matthew 7, so helpfully, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log, the beam that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, of course, we know this is not a condemnation of all correction. We are required to correct when we see sinful behavior, in our, especially our brothers and sisters. All evangelism requires some level of correction. You're living in sin. Do you know your state before God? But we are prone to having different standards for ourselves and for others. And by default, when we do that... We have forgotten who we are. So, how can I be a disciple? The first absolutely, that first absolute necessity is to re- receive instruction in wise dealing, be receptive, so that I might give prudence, and then saying with agur, agur in Proverbs thirty verse two, I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man, which primes you to be receptive. If I have nothing in and of myself, you are primed to be, give me, feed me. I need instruction. I need wisdom because I don't have it in and of myself. And it's the one who doesn't want to say, surely I'm too stupid to be a man because I have instruction. I have wisdom. I have knowledge. You're not primed to receive because you think you got it already. So, what are some implications of embracing this predisposition? If I truly cling to the wisdom that I am too stupid and have not understanding, I must strive to love, discipline, and correction. Put differently, the natural response to embracing the idea that I do not have knowledge is to seek those who would correct me. And you want to talk about something our flesh hates... It's correction. It's someone coming along and saying, you did wrong here. You need to repent. I don't know if there's anything 
that could elicit such a visceral reaction of the most people than to say, hey, you did wrong here. (laughs) We hate it. We hate it and we want to fight back immediately before we even hear what the charge is. And the wisdom from Proverbs says that has to be put to death. That has to be put to death. Mm. Yes, yes, I, I've got a bunch of different Proverbs here that speak to this, like Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is, and here's our word again, stupid. It's a hard word to hear and have to keep applying to ourselves. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And we can pause to ask our question, is there anyone who really loves discipline? Like, really? Is there anyone who just loves it when someone comes along and says, I'm here to correct you, you did something wrong here. No one is really excited for that. But that points to our flesh. That points to the indwelling flesh that's still in us. And the need we have of God in His Holy Spirit to slay our flesh. And we've said it multiple times, this is not natural. What we're asking for is not natural in the slightest. We're asking for something supernatural to happen. And even as believers, we're asking for a supernatural work that I might put myself to death and be willing to correction. Proverbs 26.16 The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And it's not just true of the sluggard. Oftentimes, we can be arguing against the whole room full of people with no thought as to, maybe I'm the one in the wrong here. But that's our nature. Proverbs 15.5 A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. 15.10, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. 15.12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. 15.14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feed on folly. 3.11-12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves Him whom He loves, as a father the son in whom He delights. And this is what's going to help us to grow to love discipline. To recognize that the Lord disciplining us is an act of love. An act of grace towards us. And if someone's coming to us with a biblical rebuke, God is correcting you through that person. In the same way that when you go to the hospital and you're cured of cancer by the doctors and their machines, God healed you. Through those men, through those machines, God heals us through medicine, God feeds us through the food that we eat, He nourishes us through the water we drink, It's not us in our own power doing these things. It's God doing it through these means. So in the same way, when someone comes along and corrects you, 
And if it's rooted in truth, that's God offering you correction. And this is going to be an essential thing to cling to, to to even have a chance of coming to love discipline and to love rebuke. Wisdom from Proverbs also points us toward a doctrine. The word is subsidiarity. Um, I'm looking outside of myself for wisdom, and I'm also prioritizing those closer to me. Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A few verses later, this is the big one in this area. Proverbs 27.10, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. And the idea is, seek out those who are close to you, geographically, rather than those who are far away, yet maybe family. What on earth do we do with this? Well, speaking of myself, the most influential person spiritually to me at this point in my life is Pastor Caleb. I can say that without any hesitation. At other times in my life, I would have said the most influential person in my life spiritually would have been Paul Washer, or James White, or Vody Bauckham. And they all have wonderful things to say. But none of them know me. <laughs> none of them know who I am. I've met James White, but <laughs> he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> and he doesn't know my sin. He can't call me out when I'm acting out. Caleb can. Which makes him much better for the role of a spiritual guide than any of those guys. Even if we grant that they might know more than Caleb does, Caleb's still going to be better. Because he's here. And he sees me. He sees my life. He can call me out when I'm wrong. Now for all of us. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. To get real practical with application, what I'm getting at is, not just us as your elders, although we want to be able to shepherd you and guide you, everyone here, the whole people of God here, we should place more esteem on the counsel of everyone in this room than my favorite podcaster, than my favorite blogger. And this goes for politics. This goes for uh, child rearing. This is problem solving with difficult family members and friends. This is uh, tr true of dealing with even depression and anxiety. Like Paul says, we are able to counsel one another. Do we believe that? And these are all counseling issues. Now you might talk to your brother and sister and they might say, I don't know, I need to figure that out. 
but it's still better to talk to people you know the name and face of, you know the life of, than someone on the internet that you don't. I want to have the impulse that the people of God here, we are going to be using the Bible to instruct one another, and that the Bible speaks to everything. It might not answer every question that I have, but it speaks to everything. Whatever issue I'm having, the Bible has something to offer. Now, I still may need other information, depending on what the issue is. The Bible doesn't tell me how to build a house. The Bible doesn't tell me how to do open-heart surgery. But the Bible does offer wisdom on how we should do these things, and our heart and how we should do these things, and how we interact with the people we're with when we do these things. So the fool would say the Bible has nothing to say about any of this, and I'm going to go my own way. What the influencers I have curated, bloggers, YouTube people, podcasters, I don't know what to call YouTube people. It is man's wisdom to some degree. And it may have varying degrees of usefulness, but I must have scriptural wisdom And it's better to have it from those who know my life than those who don't. Proverbs 6, 16 through 20, I think this is a beautiful place to go. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. We're running out of time, so I want to go to some more warnings. There's a lot of warnings in Proverbs, but I want to go to a couple more. And probably the most striking, Proverbs 18, verses 1 through 2. Especially for what we're talking about today, how can I grow in being a humble disciple? Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And do we not know this to be the case? At the risk of being, at the risk of saying too much, we have experienced this in our own congregation. And we have seen the consequences of it. We cannot isolate ourselves and think that we can do better on our own than we can with the body. We need the body. There's no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. I need people in my life that are outside of myself who can see me and correct me. We don't like that. And so we isolate. But this is 
what fools do. And a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Again, it's a lack of humility, a lack of self-awareness. I have something to offer that you must hear rather than I need to receive. Proverbs 23, 19 through 21. Hear my son and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. And the big thing, be not among drunkards or gluttonous eaters of meat. The idea that who you surround yourself with has a profound impact on your life and the wisdom you receive. We're not to isolate ourselves. We're not to surround ourselves with open, proud sinners. But we're to surround ourselves with God's people that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Proverbs 12.15, The fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 14.28, And a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without a people, a prince is ruined. doesn't matter what you have as an individual. Without a people, the prince is ruined. So, let's just pause for a moment here. Are there any questions or comments Yes. Yes. But they they want to speak to everybody in the world. Yes. But they're not Yes. Yes. And just to state it plainly, James White is a little concerning currently, <laughs> theologically. But he has always said a really helpful thing when it's come to he sees all these apologetics guys. YouTube guys that make their bones going after different cults, going after different false religions, and that is their life, that is what they do, that is who they are, and they are not plugged into the local church. They're always out traveling, doing speaking engagements on these things. That's what you see here. And what he has always said that's been so helpful is that you have to be plugged into a church. You have to have people over you. You have to have people around you. You cannot get sucked into these things, even if you're attacking them, because he shared stories about how there was an apologist against Jehovah's Witness, and he just dove in, studied it, and as shocking as it may be, he became a Jehovah's Witness because he was not plugged into the church. So, how can we grow in this? What's the ultimate source for which we can put our flesh to death, die to ourselves? And to ask the question more plainly, is this something that I can exercise like doing push-ups every day and grit my teeth and, you know, work this out in and of myself? 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Who gives generously without reproach. And what we need is wisdom. So what we need is to ask God. And we, we looked at James 4 a few weeks ago. We have not because we ask not. How often do we languish in a particular problem, delaying running to God because of pride or whatever, whereas we're commanded to ask. And we're told that we have not because we ask not. We know that as we've said, 2 Peter 1, where we began, we have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're not digging deep in ourselves to say, I'm too stupid to be a man. We're accepting that and looking to what God has given, what God has offered, chiefly in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is wisdom incarnate, who died so that we can have all things that pertain to life and godliness. And through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We're going to have to, I think, end it here. Next week, we're going to build off the assumption that I am striving to be a disciple by the grace of God. And so I'm receiving. Now, what happens on the giving end? So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I hope we've come to a greater knowledge of our lack, of our inability, of the deep, deep lack of wisdom and knowledge and understanding that is present in us. And I hope that it would drive us to seek Your face, to seek Your Word, to seek You in prayer, to ask for wisdom, to cry out for wisdom, to ask for correction and rebuke even, as painful as these things are. But we ask these things knowing that You are a loving Father, a good Father, who desires to give good things to His children and who has promised to give wisdom generously to those who ask. Lord, we love You and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.